Hello, it's Kevin Yank. Welcome back to Elm Town. And today I'm joined by Jeremy Fairbank. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Kevin. Uh, why don't you briefly introduce yourself to our audience so they know uh, who you are and why you're here today? Yeah, so my name is Jeremy Fairbank. I'm the author of Programming Elm from the Pragmatic Programmers, which has just come out. And you can check that out at Prag's website, Programming Elm. A little bit about me in general. I'm a web developer and consultant at TestDouble. We believe software is broken and that we're here to fix it. So our mission is to improve how the world builds software. And we like to do that by not only working alongside your team uh, to get stuff done, but also more importantly, to help your team improve and grow. So if you'd like to learn more about us or join an awesome team of consultants, uh, you can check us out at testdouble.com. Great. Before we get into it, I just want to mention our sponsors. As usual, we have Ellie at ellie-app.com. Ellie is the scratchpad tool for testing out and sharing snippets of Elm and seeing them run in your browser without having to do any setup of your tools on your machine. So uh, if you want to show someone Elm in a hurry, just send them to ellie-app.com and point them to an example you've made for them in advance. There's also Culture Amp, my employer. We build a tool that companies use to put culture first to make their workplaces better places to work. We are hiring front-end developers, and if you join our team in Melbourne, Australia, you will no doubt have some opportunity to use Elm on the job. So if you're anywhere near our part of the world and you're looking for your next gig, look us up at cultureamp.com jobs. And finally, Joel Claremont, who pays the bills for our recording tool. Jay Claremont on Twitter. He runs the Milwaukee Functional Programming and Milwaukee PHP meetups. And he's always looking to meet new people, particularly people who like Elm. Finally, I want to thank and acknowledge our producer, Xavier Ho, who Every single episode makes us sound great by editing out the mistakes and tweaking our audio to perfection. Thank you, Xavier. We really appreciate it. So, Jeremy, I first uh, saw you when you spoke at ElmConf in 2007 about Booleans. So that tells me that you've been doing this Elm thing for a little while. Which came first, writing books or learning Elm? Huh. Uh, well, definitely learning Elm first. I think the story goes, it was, I don't have an exact date. Sometime in 2016, I'd, I'd already been really involved in functional programming, mainly in the JavaScript world. Mm -hmm. And I had a good group of developer friends back in Tennessee. We were all kind of doing our own functional programming stuff here and there, talking about it a lot. And one of my good buddies, Reed Evans, was beginning to talk about Elm when he was playing around with some front-end stuff. And I'm like, well, I've heard about Elm before. I, I think I even played with it ages ago. So I decided to go back and check it out, and I immediately fell in love. Um, all the static types that I had been dying for, that, you know, the flow and TypeScript weren't quite uh, satisfying for me in the JavaScript world. And then on top of that, I'd been doing a lot of React and Redux type applications, and I saw the Elm architecture, and I'm like, oh, this is Redux. Actually, Redux got its ideas from Elm. And so I think all those things kind of compounded and made me really fall in love with it. And so I just wanted to start doing it for all of my personal projects um, and then start talking about it because I, I love talking about things I'm interested in. As far as the book goes, it was actually because of that kind of diving headfirst into Elm. I spoke at Codemash uh, 2017, January, and it just so happened my current editor 
was in the audience, uh, my content editor, Brian McDonald, and he came up to me afterward and was like, hey, do you want to write about Elm? You, you teach that really well. And I'm like, kind of like, me? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I gave it a, a couple days to think over, and I said, you know, what the heck? I've never written a book before. I've written blog posts before. So I, I thought it would be the same. Come, you know, a couple years later, it turns out it's not quite the same. Yeah, I've written, uh, I've written a book or two over the years as well, and I definitely agree with you. It's a funny skill to develop, and you never quite know if you're actually good at it or not, because the thing takes so long to do, I feel like your skill visibly evolves during the course of one iteration of trying to do that thing. Oh, yeah, because, you know, pragmatics kind of approach is, you know, we want things to be very tutorial-based, kind of guide the reader through step-by-step. Step. Here's how you do this to learn this technology, so to speak. As I progressed more and more, it, it became easier and easier. Whether it's the best work ever, not sure. I think we're all our own worst critics, probably. But <laughs> Well, I have to say, I've had an opportunity to review the book because you arranged for me to get an early copy so that I could, uh, on behalf of our lovely podcast, give a quote in the opening pages of the book. And I have to say, it looks pretty darn good to me. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's good to hear that feedback. Writing is a different skill, like you said, and it takes time to kind of nurture that and get better at that, especially when writing a technical book. You know, I've written papers in the past, but you can kind of get away with just being wordy there. You know, really knowing how to make the story, even if it's, you know, a technical book, make it interesting, use, you know, short action words and verbs and whatnot to just get your point across, but still keep it engaging and Probably the hardest thing is sometimes trying to find ways to inject humor in there so it's not too dry. I want to take a step back from the book for a second, and we'll drill back into it in detail. But going back to the start of your story, you were talking about, first of all, you came to Elm kind of as a hobbyist, if that's fair to say, that you were using it mainly on side projects and personal projects? Yep. What sort of things have you built with Elm is what I'm curious about. Well, I wouldn't say it's anything I've necessarily ever put into production. I mean, it's mainly, you know, little utilities here and there I've created with Elm. I, I, I created one, it was something for Spotify, because I, I was trying to mess around with authorization and APIs a long time ago. And mm. so it was a way to generate playlists, um, not polished at all, but it was a, a nice little way to use Elm for that. Polished enough for yourself to use, is that exactly. kind of the standard? Yeah, I think we all have a certain <laughs> level of that for ourselves. It's like, oh, it's for myself. I don't need to do any tests or anything. Yeah. <laughs> I had done another project. There's a repo out there, GitHub repo, that lists a lot of public APIs that you can use for building apps. And it was all just within the repo. But then I said, you know, I'd like to make this something where I can have an app and I can have all those APIs listed, but then I can filter them down by type and to do searches and whatnot. So, mm. you know, just kind of in a tabular format. So again, pretty basic stuff, but still really fun to do in Elm because of the type safety using JSON decoders to kind of ingest that information to in a safe manner. And so have you ever had an opportunity to use Elm in a production app or at work at Test Double? Oh yeah, definitely. Now the current project I'm on um, is a, actually an Elixir and Elm project. It's been really nice to, you know, officially say I've done Elm in production. I know that's it's pretty hard for a lot of people to say just because there aren't tons of Elm jobs out there, right? Right. So how did that come about? Did the client come to you and say, we want something built in Elm? Or were they already building it in Elm and, and Test Double was brought in to help out with it? How did that go? How did that end up being the technology choice? 
Uh, so they already had a bit of an LMAP in place. And originally we were brought in to, to help with a, a separate project um, that was going to have an LMUI, but kind of priorities kind of change. And so they brought us over to the other project. One of the reasons they reached out to us is because we'd worked with them in the past. Great opportunity for me here is because of the Elm experience I already had, I was able to be placed on this project. <laughs> so it wasn't a complete coincidence. You were assigned to the job that just happened to involve some Elm, but you were in the right place at the right time. Exactly. What can you share about that project? How it was different from the, the Elm that you had written for yourself? You know, a pretty large-scale single-page application, so working within those new boundaries. I, I built small single-page apps, but, you know, nothing quite at the scale with several pages. And, you know, doing interesting things, too, like displaying a loading screen between mm. you click on a link, and before you load it, we need to bring some data down. And so how do you do that in kind of a generic manner? So that was interesting. Um, mm. and you see a lot of the principles actually that are in that app. You, if you look to Richard Feldman's um, example, spa repo, you'll, mm -hmm. there's a lot of similarities actually. So it's nice to see that those patterns are well refined within the Elm community in general. Things like that, doing a lot of interesting things with um, ingesting lots of data over uh, GraphQL subscriptions, so WebSockets, yeah, wow. and graphing data with that. So lots of newer, interesting things that I quite hadn't been exposed to, at least in an Elm context. So that has been really awesome. Were there any problems with the code base? Anything that like needed some work? I mean, it's just kind of all relative. I mean, there's, there's, there's certain instances. Every code base has problems. Yeah, exactly. So it's... <laughs> I'm certainly not asking you to pass judgment. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Uh, Something, you know, just to speak to that as a consultant, you kind of, there's always some problems. So you just, you tackle one problem and then the next one shows up. And again, no judgment on mm. those existing, but I kind of go back to if people have seen Richard Feldman's uh, scaling LMAP talk, things where, you know, we have lots and lots of message constructors and looking at ways that we could reduce those down in a more composable manner. So instances like that where it's just there's a lot of boilerplate code, especially in the single uh, entry point to the app. Um, and then there's other places where trying to test things in kind of an integration-y manner, if that's a word. Oh, yeah. Integration-y. Yep. And, it, you know, it's difficult to test commands. So working around some of those challenges, creating different data types where we can test those things without dealing with command, testing commands rather. Um, mm. So those are some of the challenges, some of the things, but again, every code base evolves and gets better, I suppose, as it goes on. Yeah. So would you have had confidence to write a book about Elm having not worked on a, on a large scale production quality code base like that? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting thing because at one level, you can kind of take me personally, all my years of web development experience, and most of that you can just apply to another language. But at the same time, I think it, it was being, it was super beneficial to have that, especially when, you know, when we talk about things like scaling apps, like I have a chapter on dealing with larger scale apps. Yeah. It's all relative, but, um, and how you deal with those challenges and not really seeing those problems firsthand, it, it makes it a little harder to talk about. Mm. So I think having some experience is beneficial I can talk about other things like with like benchmarking and the chapter of where we where I kind of benchmark some apps and some list code and whatnot. Yeah, the very last chapter. Yeah, so that's not something you know I'm doing every 
day to day. So that's an example where it's just like, I'm going to go learn this because I know I want to talk about this and I know it, you know, lazy things are really important sometimes when it comes to considering performance. I guess all that to say, it's kind of a balance between experience helps a lot, but then in other areas you can get by. <laughs> I don't know if you uh, relate to this, but the biggest challenge for me having done a fair bit of technical writing over the years is preserving the beginner's mindset. I feel like there is this optimal moment where you have learned something well enough to be able to pivot around the ideas and see them from different angles and, and therefore teach it with confidence in a way that many people will find accessible, but not being so advanced in the thing that you've built abstractions that your readers won't share in your mind and you will find it difficult to explain the thing in beginner's terms. I feel like there's a version of knowing something too well to be able to teach it and uh, if I've gotten any expertise at technical writing over the years, I feel like it has been overcoming that challenge of, of keeping myself or returning to the beginner's mindset to remember what do I wish someone had been able to explain to me very clearly on the first day that I was trying to learn this thing. Oh, absolutely. I identify with that so much. I think that was one of the biggest challenges too, working through this book is that trying to introduce things slowly and progressively, sometimes going against your own kind of like introducing like code smells in a sense, but that's okay because you're guiding readers along. For example, in one in the stateful applications chapter, I'm introducing booleans and you know, I have a talk about don't do this, but <laughs> it's what readers need at that moment. They don't need to know quite yet about how you can model state and with the uh, custom types used to be called union types. You know, you're fighting against some of those urges. And at the same time, like you said, you're trying to get back to that starting place. Remember, what was it like when you learned this? And how can I best guide the reader from beginning of the book to the end to where I can build up to those things? But you know, it, it takes time. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciated about the review copy I got is something I always ask myself is, how are they going to create the foundation for teaching some more advanced concepts. So I skipped directly ahead to what looked from the table of contents to me to be the hardest chapter to write, which is the build larger applications chapter. I don't know, uh, that's a question I have for you is like, what were the easy chapters to write and what were the harder chapters? But my guess was that that was a tough one to write. And I was really excited to see that chapter, which was, basically about refactoring apps so that the code bases uh, have healthier patterns to grow around. I, I really liked that at that point in the book, you went, okay, we're going to set aside all the code we've written so far. Here's a new code base. I've made it in advance for you. There are a bunch of unhealthy patterns that we're going to want to fix in this chapter, but the reader is not responsible for having introduced any of those. It's not like you had to spend five chapters luring them into the trap of creating these unhealthy sticking points in the code base just so that you could solve them in chapter six, which I feel is a risk with writing this kind of tutorial book. You almost have to teach them the bad way and then tell them everything they just did was wrong and now I'll teach you the right way. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. So that that was a very hard chapter. Only, I mean, just beginning to like, okay, I need to purposely write an app that has a lot of those unhealthy patterns. Yeah, it's so much work. It's extra work. 
Yeah, that, that was super difficult. And then kind of planning the trajectory, like here's all the concepts I want to teach. How can I introduce each one in each section and keep things um, consistently building up to the end? We don't want to kind of make the reader feel like we've just lured them in, like you said. That was actually something my editor taught me early on, that it's like, don't lead the reader into a trap where it's like, we just did this thing, but actually that's not good. We should have done this. When I talk about that in the book at any point where it's like, we're going to do this, but we're going to purposely break something. We're going to purposely do this. I'm not trying to trick you here. Yes, yes. But yeah, I think the other thing too with that build larger applications chapter as well is that by it being a, a different application is that it also helps readers to kind of digest something they didn't write. So if they're yeah. starting their first new day at a, at a new job or something and they're, or they're a consultant the, the first day on this client project and it's like they've just inherited this code base. Mm. And so being able to understand someone else's code and identify those unhealthy patterns and then be able to introduce um, better patterns. I would say some of the some of the later chapters they weren't especially difficult per se, but it, there's a lot of planning. The, the The performance chapter was a little challenging in that there were a lot of screenshots and a lot of measurements I had to do in that chapter, and so a lot of time went into getting all that data collected and put in there. You know, another challenge when when the Elm nineteen upgrade came out and I knew that there were going to be some performance enhancements around lists. I almost like, Oh no. (laughs) Like I was worried that some of those enhancements would kind of negate the things I taught about writing list code. Yeah. Does this chapter even need to exist? Exactly. So it it turns out it it still worked out perfectly. And the the concepts taught in there still apply to lists um, in Elm 19 as well. So that's good. So yeah, it's just, there's a lot of planning. So what did that process look like? Was it very collaborative with uh, your editor figuring out what you would cover in what order and in what way? Early on in the process, I provided kind of an outline of like, here's the topics I would like to cover in the book, but it wasn't super detailed. But when it came time to actually work on an individual chapter, it it was mostly, I was just kind of planning and thinking through, here's the concept I want to teach for the performance chapter. I want to teach about performance. The thing with pragmatic, and I want to make this a pragmatic approach, is I'd like to at least offer something that um, a real-world application puts you in a scenario like that chapter. The scenario is you've been hired by this company to improve the performance of the app. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of subtle, where it's not like, here's some code samples. It's more like, here's the situation you're in with this real-world thing, mm. which is why I have these apps hit like real APIs I wrote, too. So you're dealing with you know, kind of real data. It's stubbed out, but still. Some of the examples are pointing to things that are hosted on the book's website uh, as APIs. That's something that's definitely changed about writing tech books since I last did it. Is uh, There was a rule when I last wrote a tech book that if you have nothing else but the book in your hands, if you have no internet connection, nothing, you should still be able to, to get through the book and follow all of the instructions and examples. Whereas I feel like reading through this, there's a lot more of an assumption of, well, you have access to the code download, you have internet access so you can hit these APIs. There is an outside world that is assumed to exist to support this book. And it makes it, uh, there's a lot fewer walls of code in this book than than there were back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to go with that approach just to make things 
more accessible as far as I can just dive right in. I don't need to worry about setting up some other server, running some APIs and whatnot. I can just start writing this Elm code and here's this endpoint I can hit. And so that, that's, that's how I wanted to approach it. I, toward the end, I did add some asides throughout the book that if the reader does want to run the server locally, there's now instructions on how to do so. Because I think it's fair to assume you're, you know, you're working on the train or, or something. You don't have internet access. You're on holiday. On holiday, whatever. Ways for you to still, as long as you've downloaded and got the thing set up, you can run it locally too, if need be. In every book I've written, there are particular examples or particular things I'm proud of that I'm pretty sure no one else notices as unusual <laughs> uh, other than me. Is there anything that is special about this book that for you sets it apart from any other Elm tutorial that you're happy you got to teach Elm this particular way? So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really love a lot of the, the chapters um, and the, some of the, the material in there. So it's kind of hard, but I, I'd say the testing chapter, I don't see a lot. And maybe it's just, I've not just not seen it, links or blog posts about it. They, they may exist out there. I don't want to say they don't, but I, I don't see a lot of story around test-driven development in Elm. And I, I don't think the community says don't test, but there is that strong emphasis sometimes that, well, with static types, you really don't need to test. And that's, I think that's partially true, especially when it comes to integrations. My point is, though, it doesn't seem like there's a strong story around test-driven development. And so that's one of the things I try to focus on in that chapter is like, let's actually do, you know, red-green refactor type yeah. testing here. We're going to write the test first. It's obviously going to fail. And then we'll go implement it. I'm curious if you agree with this. And if I, I haven't read that particular chapter, whether uh, it matches up is for me, the, like I get my TDD skills back from writing Ruby mostly. and the community is right that a lot of the things you might write unit tests for and do that red-green refactor cycle with is stuff that the Elm type system relieves you of by making you think about a type and then your compiler will, will hold your code to being compatible with that type. And if you change your mind, then you change the type and, and the compiler's got your back. But there is a certain point of complexity in almost every Elm app of interesting size where I get to a point where I'm like, oh, this is a feature that I cannot uh, get the type system to enforce for me. This is a piece of logic. This can only be true if that is true. And I can't model it with the type system without breaking some other thing that I've modeled with the type system. And so now I'm writing logic in my code. And that's the point at which I start writing tests and start doing the red-green refactor from my old habits. Did you, in order to teach this, did you have to come up with an example of something that couldn't be modeled with Elm's type system? Yes. Yeah, so in that particular chapter, it's to write your own sort of date library which obviously there's options available, but the point is to kind of go through that process of test driving it. And so there's plenty of that logic in there when we're wanting to add days to a date and figure out what's the new date if you add X number of days or X number of months to it. So there's lots of good logic there. To my earlier point about you don't see, at least I haven't seen a lot of stories behind test-driven development is that test-driven development 
is also a, a good tool for test-driven design where I'm wanting to flesh out some sort of API for my package or my library or module or what, what, depending on what context I'm in. And tests can provide useful feedback for how accessible or useful that API is versus just kind of throwing it together, putting it in your application and maybe adding tests after the fact. Once you have all that in place, it's kind of harder to go back and say, well, you know what, this API was kind of cumbersome to use. It'd be nice to change it. So then mm -hmm. you have to go back and follow the types to fix everything. So that's the other point I try to make, though, is that you can, you can decide what this API needs to look at before you even add it to your application code. Yeah, right. The domains of dates and times is a perfect example of something that you can't model with a type system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the type system that you could model dates and times with. I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't want to use it. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I find about writing a book is that it's a fairly lonely process. Do you find like this process of writing was a more solitary thing than you typically do day to day at work? It's a labor of love to work on this, whether when I was back on the mainland, getting up in the wee hours of the morning before client work to work on the book. Okay, so this is a morning book. It started off as a morning book, and now that <laughs> you know we made the move to Hawaii, it's been a after work type activity, which oh, yeah. it's fine, but you know, there, was, there were a lot of times that to meet certain deadlines probably that I'm arbitrarily placing on myself, I would have to you know work some, a little bit on the weekend here and there, so God bless my wife for <laughs> putting up with me like, oh, sorry, I can't, you know, hang out today, uh, at least not in the morning, because I got to work on the book some to get this certain thing finished. So I, I definitely identify with that sort of solitary, almost lonely aspect of it. All that to say, I, I appreciate you, Emily, my wife. That's name. <laughs> I, I love Very you. Good. Thank you for all <laughs> your support. We all, we all owe you one, Emily. Thank you very much. For, uh... <laughs> giving Jeremy the time and space to do this crazy thing. Does it feel like a crazy thing now that it's done when you look back on it? Is it like, I can't believe I did that? Would you do it again knowing how much work was involved in hindsight? It's kind of overwhelming to think, I, I you know, here I am, I, I finished it, but you know, it's like just the fact that says, oh, I actually wrote a book and it's gonna get, or it's getting published by a fairly well-known publisher. Mm. So. That's, it's humbling to even think that, you know, I would be offered that opportunity. So I'm extremely thankful for that opportunity. To, to say that I would do another, I, <laughs> I would say not immediately. Uh, yeah, I would likely need a little time because it's, it's an investment and you have to sometimes change priorities and you, you don't want that to affect family life or other things like that. Like I mentioned, like sometimes having to sacrifice weekends, that kind of sucks, especially when you have a young kid too that you want to hang out with. So I wouldn't do this again, at least not immediately. <laughs> well, I can give you a hot tip. When Elm 20 comes out, updating a book for a new edition is a lot less work than writing one from scratch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we will see uh, future updates to this book as, uh, although, uh, Pragmatic does this nice thing of if you buy the ebook, they'll give you updates for, you know, minor compatibility releases and things like that for free. Are you planning to do updates for this book as, as Elm progresses forward? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that I wouldn't keep this book updated because 
I definitely, it's a, it's a labor of love. I want to, I want to make sure it stays up to date uh, yeah. as much as possible, but yeah. And it's awesome that, that pragmatic offers that to just push those updates out when you have the ebook. What was the, you talked a little bit about it, but there's, is there anything else you can tell us about the relationship with pragmatic? What advice did they give you or support did they give you? How is this book better for the partnership that you had with your publisher? So I'd say a lot of that is definitely from my editor, content editor, Brian McDonald. And is he like a staff editor at Pragmatic or was he, uh, you know, brought on just for this book like yourself? So he, yes, he is a staff editor at Pragmatic. Yep. Um, and if, if you're not familiar with his name, I, I believe he did edit the You Don't Know JS books too by ah. Kyle Simpson. So he's he's had a hand in a lot of great books over the years. An eye um, for detail you have to have to edit a book like that. I owe a lot to him. He knows how to take these technical stories and craft them in a way that it's engaging and that it is really guiding the reader toward not only just doing the stuff because it's a tutorial, you follow steps, but that they, they're understanding it. And so he has a good sense in my writing where it's like, I think you need to elaborate a little more here because it's, I think there's some details you're missing or... Mm you know, it might be helpful to link to uh, another resource, like when I talk about WebSockets. So I am greatly appreciative. Um, the, the book is is what it is because of his editing um, and helping guide me toward telling that story properly. For a beginner's tutorial book, there is a point at which you have to decide, where do I want to get the reader to? What launching point for their own future learning do I want to get them to? Because there's no way in one book that you can teach them everything there is to know about front-end web development in a particular uh, stack. So where did you want to get readers to? And I guess maybe even taking a step back, who do you see as the ideal reader for this book? And, and what is the experience you're hoping they have? I would say is that's to the first question is, you know, I want readers for beginners and I guess to kind of answer the second question, it is primarily geared toward those front end developers that they already have HTML and CSS and some JavaScript knowledge. They don't have to know tons of JavaScript because the most of the JavaScript in the book is fairly minimal. So it's, it's mainly targeting those people, but you know, I want to, get them to a point where they've kind of covered a nice breadth of everything. Like they have the core down. I know how to build a stateful Elm application. I know how to do some debugging. I know how to test. I know how to scale that out with the, the scaling approaches and the, the lar build larger applications chapter. I know how to even go further to build a single page app, even if it's just a basic one. And then should I run into performance issues, here's how I kind of debug that and deal with performance. But where one of the boundaries I kind of placed at is that I didn't want to, I didn't want to get too much into a lot of the other like really awesome things in the Elm community, like Elm UI, Elm CSS. Yeah, you can very quickly fall into a one chapter per package sort of tour of the ecosystem. Exactly. So I mean, it's inevitable you're going to have to use some third party packages, and they're all amazing. But I wanted to focus on the core of like knowing how to build the Elm application and test and debug and do performance and all of that without worrying about how, how do you do your CSS with Elm CSS, for example. In the book, it's just we write regular CSS, so we don't have to focus on that. 
if you did write like a sequel to this book, which was okay, now that you know Elm, here are the amazing things that exist in the Elm ecosystem and community that I want to show you. Like, what would be on your shortlist for that? I would say Elm CSS and Elm UI. Those are two big community favorites. I really yep. love them too. So it would be awesome to include them. I think for that kind of book, it wouldn't be just like here's stuff in the Elm community, but it would also be topics. I've gotten a lot of feedback on the book from tech reviews where people said, well, it'd be really nice to know how to do JSON web tokens, authorization, authentication, all that stuff. And it's like, I I get where people are coming from that. Again, it wasn't something I wanted to focus on in this book. I want to just focus on here's how you make an HTTP request. And so that would be another, I think, topic to kind of cover in a more advanced book. Like, here's Mm. how you handle authentication. Where do you store state for that? Uh, and what are the trade-offs for that as well? Yeah. I had a long career at a technical publisher called SitePoint. And uh, we had two kinds of books for a while. We had the beginner tutorial, build this with that sort of book. So like my first book was build your own database-driven website with PHP and My- MySQL. Build this with that. And then there is the follow-up book, which was the cookbook sort of book. So the PHP cookbook, which is chapter by chapter, here is something non-trivial that we will give you some advanced tools and you will be able to then solve that non-trivial problem. And uh, each chapter is sort of, it's like a grab bag sort of book. You could read read the chapters in any order. And um, the idea is, you know, you might be Googling for how to do this and you find there is a book with a whole chapter on doing that thing well. And you're like, wow, I'm going to pick up that book. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to get some cookbook-style books for Elm uh, at some point in the future. Yeah, I would, I'd like to see that, even if I'm not the one writing it. I think the, <laughs> the community would really benefit from it because there's there's just lots of scenarios, even with, even with data modeling. How do you model this with dictionaries or something? I, I know Richard Feldman, he gave a great talk at the last ElmConf about um, structuring relational data. And so, you know, we need more of that because... Some people, it's it's different when you come from maybe that imperative mindset in the JavaScript world, and it's like, how do you do this in a functional language like Elm? I have a pet peeve at the moment. I've written a couple of Elm apps lately where animated transitions are like core to the experience that I'm trying to create. And every time you do that thing where the new content is coming in and the old content is fading out at the same time, it breaks the data model that you had so carefully thought through at the start of the application because suddenly you need to see two mutually exclusive states on screen at the same time. And I feel like in JavaScript land, you can kind you can often kind of cheat that by just leaving the old thing lying around in the DOM until you're ready to delete it. Whereas in Elm, if it's on the screen, it's in your model. And so every time, like, and this has happened to me twice in the last six months where I've had to rip the guts out of an app I'm halfway through writing because I realized that my assumptions about the state were the start and end points of transitions. And I did not think to model the partially complete transition state. Yeah, I think that'd be another great example. Yeah. I, in fact, I'm right off the top of my head, I'm like, how would I do that? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we need that. <laughs> Right. So you mentioned linking off to a resource on WebSockets before, and that like pinged my radar of things that are moving targets in the Elm landscape at the moment. If you're, you're writing a book, one presumes for the way Elm is on the day of release, 
how do you deal with something like WebSockets that we know, you know, it's changing, it's likely to be different in the near future? How did you approach that? Are there any other things like that in this book? Yeah, so there's a, a couple um, areas, but definitely with the WebSockets, one of the challenges uh, when the Elm 19 release came out is that the, the Elm WebSockets library is not quite ready yet for 19. Um, and so you're dealing with the challenges of that is because ideally you want to use like, here's the, you know, the official Elm way to deal with this. Mm. And so, you know, one of the trade-offs I had to make there was to go ahead and introduce ports a little earlier. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you're integrate with JavaScript chapters, chapter eight, but you're talking about WebSockets back in chapter five. How did you make that happen? Yeah, so that that was actually a point where we talked earlier about collaborating. I did collaborate a little with my editor on, like, you know, here's a few options for ways we could move forward. And we ultimately decided, like, let's put ports there, but let's, we'll explain enough so that the reader can get the thing working with WebSockets, mm. but kind of kind of also say, you know, we're going to dive more in depth into ports in this later chapter, but for now we need it because of some of these constraints of the, the library not quite being ready yet. Mm. And so I think we struck a good balance there. It's like we introduce ports as minimally as possible, but not enough where readers don't feel like they know what's going on either. So, and, and the, kind of to your earlier point about the the pragmatic release model is that once once that library is out, we can make a minor release update for the ebook and we can actually go back to using the actual library. So that'll be really nice. It must have been tempting to just leave that sort of topic out of the book and go, well, you know, Elm's story there is not yet finalized, so we won't talk about that. Uh, but you went the extra mile to put it in. Yeah, I think that's one of the other challenges too, is that that chapter, that was my subscriptions chapter, basically. Like, I'm going to talk about what subscriptions are. Oh, right. Because I was already using this picture app, and we want to have a feed of photos, I'm like, well, this is perfect. I can teach subscriptions via WebSockets. But I was kind of, like, stuck in this weird place where it's like, I, I want to teach subscriptions. So that's how I had to, to kind of decide to go ahead with this workaround with ports. That sounds like a stronger topic to, to teach subscriptions with as well. I mean, like, I think the typical thing would be to subscribe to time or animation frames and, and drive something in your app off of that. But it doesn't really, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I feel like when I hear the concept of subscriptions, I'm, I'm very excited about my LMAP responding to something dynamic in the outside world. And if that ends up just being the, the seconds ticking by or the animation frames of the browser, that's a bit of a letdown and a disappointment. Whereas, you know, actually receiving content live from something that's pushing it to your app, that does sound dynamic and exciting. Yeah, definitely. I was, you know, that was one of the things we considered too. It's like, well, we could just do something different, but mm. At that point, I, I didn't want to feel like I was just shoehorning in a feature yep. to teach subscriptions. I mean, you could say WebSockets here was shoehorning in a feature, but it's a more practical, realistic feature for this type of app. And is that the last chapter where you're working on that Photos app? Because I know the, the, the Salad Bar app comes in in Chapter 6, but do you go back to the Photos? Yeah, so that app comes back later on in the Single Page app, as well as the ah. Develop, Debug, and Deploy App. So that is the big example for the book. 
it's mostly the overarching, yeah. So some of the chapters do something a little different, but it comes back in the debug chapters to where you can deploy the app. So it's develop, debug, deploy, but you can deploy the app to a real, you know, to the cloud with a surge tool. And then it comes back in the single page application chapter where you can turn that app into a single page application. This is the Elmtown podcast after all, so I assume a lot of the people listening will will know a fair bit of Elm, and they might be thinking of this book as, is this the thing I would buy for or recommend for the person I meet who is curious about Elm? So to the Elm experts in the audience who might have questions about something like WebSockets, is there anything else that you would tell them about, okay, this book makes this choice this compromise teaches this thing that way that you would want them to know? I would say for the people that are more well-versed in Elm, some of the later chapters still have plenty of those nuggets, even in starting as early as the develop, debug, and deploy chapter and using some of the features with the debug module. We've used debug blog a lot, but there's also the debug to do, which is quite useful for kind of marking code that you haven't implemented yet. I love it. I tried to use it yesterday and then I re realized I was still in an Elm 18 code base and I didn't have it. <laughs> oh yes. That one's actually called debug crash yep. in Elm 18, but yep. similar concept. This is me probably going a little against the community, but I, I think it's good to have, you know, different ideas or different opinions on things. In the testing chapter, I teach fuzzing, but it's not to me, it's not as important as sometimes it's made out to be. I think, I think fuzz tests are really nice and great to have in certain situations, but it, sometimes it can destroy that sort of test-driven design story where a test kind of says, here's this unique case or this unique, interesting thing about this API that I'm testing. And sometimes just using a fuzz test kind of muddies the water or makes things a little more opaque about what's important here. If I'm understanding you right, uh, I've never written fuzz tests before, but I've seen plenty of conference talks about them. <laughs> and my understanding is that the strength of fuzz tests is that they will detect and catch the edge cases that you didn't think of. Mm -hmm. But when you can, it's nice if your test suite can describe those edge cases. And so that you can read your tests as a story of, well, in this interesting case, I have decided to make it do this and not that. Exactly. And it's, mm. it's about that story, like you mentioned it. And that's not to say fuzz tests aren't useful. They are. It's, sometimes it's useful to have that fuzz test to catch the edge cases. And then maybe after the fact, like you said, let's, let's pull that into a specific test case so we can tell a story here. Because tests can be very beneficial for documentation. All right. So if I have a friend who needs to learn Elm, this is the right book for them because... I would say it's the right book for them because it takes them on an entire journey from knowing nothing to knowing how to build these apps and test them and debug them and scale up to even single page applications and then even performance test it to make sure it's running great in the browser. That sounds good to me. Well, thanks for spending some time with us in Elmtown, Jeremy. It was, uh, it's always great to talk about writing books. It's something that, like I said earlier, it's a solitary thing. So it's, it's always fun to commiserate with someone who's been there. Yeah, definitely. It's been great talking with you, Kevin.
<laughs> thanks again. And thanks for listening to Elmtown. If you would like to check out the recently released Programming Elm book by Jeremy Fairbank, you should head over to the Pragmatic Programmers website at pragprog.com slash book slash jfelm slash programming dash elm. Or, you know, just ask your friendly neighborhood search engine where to find Programming Elm by Jeremy Fairbank. Uh, check it out. I have a quote in it that says how much I like it. And now I have a whole podcast episode that says how much I like it. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us in Elmtown. We'll be back with another episode soon. Until then, I'm Kevin Yank. Bye for now.